This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Flying cars. The biggest disappointment of the digital age is that information flies around the world at the speed of light, but the rest of us have to rely on a technology invented by the Mesopotamians 6,000 years ago. The wheel. Yes, cars are faster than bullock cars, but why are we still stuck to the ground six millennia later? Of course, Matt Armitage is a well-known hater of the idea of flying cars. Matt, I bet you had to kind of uh, force yourself a little bit to cover this today, didn't you? Hey, Rich. Yeah, I kind of did. You know, I thought that one of the few bright spots of the pandemic might be that, you know, I'm not talking to people, so fewer people are going to talk to me about flying cars. Uh, They might uh, ask me about other subjects. You know, we talk about all kinds of things on Matt's Blaine, the future of employment, the future of society, artificial intelligence, privacy, the oligarchic and monopolistic power of technology companies. But there are really only two things that anyone ever wants to ask me about. Sex robots and flying cars. Yeah, I've become the sex robot guy. That's uh, not a great quirk to have, and it does limit my children's party work. But um, what actually seems to have happened is that because I have fewer conversations with, you know, real people, the topic of flying cars has actually increased as a percentage of my overall conversations. It's not like I get, you know, a lot of interaction on social media, but I think at least two people have asked me about flying cars already this month. And that's two more than have asked me about reforming the tech industry or how to manage tech addiction. Hmm. But now it seems flying cars are back from outer space. Yeah, before he left, uh, Jeff actually told me that you're not supposed to use that line anymore. You're not allowed to. I know. He's gone and uh, he's still controlling my life. But, you know, it's okay. I'll survive. Matt, you've been warned. All right. I'm out of the door. Uh, while we were all sheltering in place, I'm sorry. That's no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry at all. It seems like the, the various parts of the flying car industry were going into overdraft or uh, updraft or overdrive, whatever it is that makes flying cars work. And as the developing world has uh, re-emerged from the pandemic, so have these cars to spread more fear and confusion. You really don't like the idea of flying cars, do you? Well, I can see how listeners might think today's show is maybe lacking in objectivity. So I will keep my comments to myself, at least until the end of the show, and uh, limit myself to reporting factual information for the time being. Uh, If you can manage that, you might even win a Nobel Prize. Well, I'm not going to promise, but... You know, I think I'm a shoo-in for that shortlist. So I guess, you know, first things first, we have to define what a flying car is. Now, we've talked about this so much on Matt's Blaine and on the the pre-Matt's Blaine shows over the last 10 years. So I'm not going to go into too much detail. You can just go back into the archive and have a look at that. But Mm. just in brief, there have been various versions and prototypes of flying cars around since the 1920s. And, you know, I might actually put that on a t-shirt so that when people ask me when is someone going to invent the flying car i can just point to the answer 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that confuses people the most. That they assume that because they don't see flying cars, that they're not technically possible. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, early flying car prototypes tended to be hybrids of cars and planes. So either you got a car that you just put wings on, or mm. you got a plane that you took the wings off and drove like a car. And of course, taking either of those approaches leads to a, a lot of practical problems. Uh, aerodynamics. Well, yeah, if uh, any of you are supercar or Formula uh, Formula One fans, you'll know that uh, a hugely important part of that design process is creating downforce. You know, as cars get more and more powerful, we're regularly seeing supercars break that thousand horsepower mark. So it really becomes about controlling the torque and keeping those vehicles on the ground. Mm. Uh, jet, jet cars are actually a great example. YouTube is full of uh, videos of jet propelled dragsters flipping or you know, believing they can fly. So two of the most famous examples of uh, jet car fail are, of course, the Mythbusters TV show and uh, the jet-propelled dragster that nearly killed uh, former Top Gear TV presenter Richard Hammond back in, I think, 2006. Mm. So cars and planes are kind of opposites in that respect. So early flying car prototypes were often very difficult to get off the ground and they had all the stability of a flying brick. And what you really don't want to be putting into the hands of the average driver is something that's harder to fly than a regular plane. Because, you know, design, it's not just aesthetics. It's about structure. It's about practicality. How many aeroplanes look like a four-door saloon car? And, you know, there are very good reasons why a 747 isn't just a double-decker bus with wings. And um, we have the reverse case for planes as cars. Well, of course, on the ground, they tended to be very slow. They had small wheels and, of course, terrible suspension. It's also a lot harder to stow the wings. And, you know, propellers are not great at pedestrian crossings, outside <laughs> schools, uh, or for cyclists. You know, look at all the issues that Toyota had over those sticky accelerator pedal claims 10 years ago. So imagine what a faulty propeller might do. And of course, you know, there's not a lot of head-on impact protection in a plane because it's built for lightness. And, you know, in most collisions with a plane, you don't survive anyway. So mm. you're trying to engineer something here that meets the safety requirements of both air and land vehicles. And that's, you know, that's basically an insane task to achieve. So when we talk about this um, resurgence of flying cars, we're really talking about something else, um, something new. Absolutely. I mean, I guess one of the best examples, if you're looking at a starting point, is the gyrocopter that James Bond flew in uh, You Only Live Twice. Now, I've used that as an example on the show before. But just to give you some context, even that idea is over 50 years old. That movie dates back to 1967. So you can see from this timeline how tricky the whole concept of personal aviation is. And that gyrocopter is essentially a mini helicopter. Helicopters are pretty tricky to fly. If I remember correctly, they take a lot more hours to get a license to fly than a light aircraft does. And they tend to have a lot more accidents than traditional aircraft. So I think we've all seen those pictures of uh, helicopter cowboys on farms in Australia, you know, rounding up cattle. That's one of the world's most dangerous jobs. Uh, at least with light aircraft, if something goes wrong with the engine, they glide. 
it, it experienced engine failure on helicopter and basically it just drops out of the sky. Again, not the kind of thing you want to put in the hands of, you know, a bleary-eyed commuter, let alone a post-happy hour commuter. Right. So really, we're talking about drones here then, I guess. Well, until recently, we haven't been able to say with too much certainty. Uh, and there are actually a few makers who haven't given up on the hybrid idea, the the plane that drives or the car that flies. Uh, a lot of the companies working on personal flying vehicles have been very secretive about their prototypes. So unless you were lucky enough to spot one in the sky on one of its test flights, you'd likely have very little idea what these craft actually looked like, uh, how they were driven, and how many passengers they carried. And the companies tend to choose remote locations, partly for safety reasons, and of course, for secrecy. And weirdly, there also seems to be enormous amounts of industrial espionage going on between these flying vehicle developers, or at least I should say, allegations of espionage between these companies, suits and countersuits. Like the epic Apple and Samsung battle. Yeah, only this time it's over designs and technology that no one's even seen yet. But going back to your point about drones, you know, we are finally starting to see the prototypes. And in some cases, actually, they're, they're the ready for market devices that these companies have developed. And that brings us again back to that timeline. This isn't something that's happened overnight. These are companies that have been working on their products, keeping them out of the public view, uh, not for any nefarious reasons, but keeping them out of the public view for 10 years or more. So in a sense, those timelines tell you everything you need to know about flying cars. The first flying car prototypes are now over 100 years old. And even with all the excitement around autonomous and electric cars since the early noughties, we still haven't seen self-driving cars on the roads in any great numbers. So we're only starting to see these flying car prototypes now. So I think we've still got a long, long way to go. Do you think that's the route that we seem to be going down now, autonomously piloted and electronically driven? I mean, we'll get more fully into the details after the break. But yes, the focus does seem to be on green and if not fully automated, then at least partially automated. And that shouldn't be a surprise. You know, passenger aircraft are similarly partially automated, especially in terms of uh, takeoff and landing, because those are the times of greatest risk when you're flying. So it makes sense that aircraft builders would design systems that give the pilots the most assistance during those most dangerous times. Mm. So in the same way that uh, car makers have started to incorporate radar and automatic braking technology into to cars, you know, we're already seeing those technologies making their way from the luxury to the saloon car segment, as well as into some of the premium small cars. Presumably, we're still talking about maneuverability and vertical takeoff, though. Well, yeah. I mean, the idea of personal flying vehicles is about freedom from congestion, you know, the, the freedom of the skies rather than the imprisonment of the roads. Mm. So the average condo would not be a pleasant place to live if all the residents were sharing a runway. Mm. Uh, although there are actually some gated communities in the US that are built around a runway and they actually market specifically to light aircraft enthusiasts. So uh, you have the garage on your house and you also have a hangar for your plane. But if you're talking about flying cars in terms of easing urban congestion, then of course they have to be vertical takeoff. 
Uh, so that's where the comparison to drones comes in. So a lot of these new craft have propellers that switch from that downward thrust needed for takeoff and landing uh, to whatever kind of thrust it is that you use for propulsion. Okay, um, we've got to take a break. But before we do that, would it be um, correct to describe you as cautiously optimistic about this new generation of flying cars? Yeah, there are still an enormous number of hurdles to negotiate, which we'll come back to after the break. But I certainly think there's a lot of potential there to uh, expand probably public rather than individual transport with flying cars. Okay, uh, when we come back, which flying car would you choose? You're listening to Matt Splaint here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Breathe freely, Malaysians. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Matt Splained. I'm Rich Bradbury. Um, we're away with the birds today, uh, talking about the future of flying cars. Um, Matt, you mentioned um, that there are a number of companies creating these vehicles. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a boom sector. So in the US, we have companies like Opener, Kitty Hawk, Whisk Aero, Archer, uh, Joby Aircraft. In Germany, there's a company called Lilium. Uh, the big boys, Boeing and Airbus, are also developing urban-type prototypes, though probably for larger and more commercial traffic, so literally sky buses. And then, of course, there's Ehang, the uh, autonomous aircraft company from China that's actually the world leader in terms of launching to market. And these are just a handful. You know, there are plenty more. Some are more secretive than others. And that's without mentioning all the defense-linked companies that are working on the really secret projects. Which suggests that there's an awful lot of money chasing this sector. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, astonishing valuations in this sector. Uh, Joby Aviation is expected to merge with a, a SPAC this year and go public with a valuation of over $6 billion. Uh, and several of the other companies in the sector are working on similarly structured SPAC-type deals to, to bring them public. And one of the guys behind that Joby Aviation deal is Reid Hoffman, uh, the venture capitalist and, of course, the co-founder of LinkedIn. So there is a lot of serious money here. Uh, Google's Larry Page has put money into a number of aviation startups, including, as I mentioned, Opener and uh, Kitty Hawk. And I guess that kind of takes us back to the question about motivation. Most people see flying cars as personal transport, but is this what these craft are kind of uh, designed to be? Well, there's kind of an irony in talking about this today because flying used to be something we did so casually. But, you know, I haven't been on a plane in two years now. Uh, and I guess most people haven't been on a plane in over a year. And at one point, like a lot of people, I was taking flights, you know, practically every other week. So the idea of getting back to the skies is, it's kind of daunting and tantalizing at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a habit that we've broken, or, you know, certainly I have, as you know, we described back in, uh, I think, MSP 159. But back to that question, uh, some of the new planes are personal vehicles, uh, such as uh, Opener's Blackfly. But by and large, they seem to be targeting that mass transit sector, the Uber of the skies, I guess you'd term it. And part of the reason for that, 
I guess is mostly cost. Open as Blackfly will cost around 150,000 US dollars, but its founder hopes to get that price down to the equivalent of an SUV as the market scales up. But the price of an SUV is still a lot of money for a single occupant vehicle. Uh, Some of his competitors have larger and more expensive craft, but by and large, you're looking at passenger loads of between one and four people. So they should still be largely cheaper than helicopters. And the hope is that they will be safer and cheaper to run than helicopters as well. So this is essentially an an air taxi play. Yeah, and that's not an untried market. So Brazil's Rio de Janeiro is a model for commercial air taxis based around helicopters. So we're not talking about creating a business model from scratch, which is probably why investors are so attracted to it. If we're talking about uh, a market at that scale, tackling one city and then rolling it onto the next, how will that work in terms of logistics? Are there going to be enough pilots? Well, this is the thing, you know, we know that autonomous cars are the gold standard for the e-hailing industry. The the driver is the most expensive part of your journey. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of scale these companies can achieve if they are forced by regulators to have physical pilots. Mm. Ehang, I think, has been working with a number of cities in China, as well as governments in the Middle East. And they're actually working on licensing for autonomous air taxis in Europe. Uh, So like I said, they're autonomous. There's no pilot, just the passengers. But they do have a command center where the drones are monitored by human operators who can take over in case of any emergencies. Now, I know that you think that autonomous vehicles are likely to be safer. Well, when we're talking about cars, I think they have the potential to be safer and reduce congestion. So perhaps more in urban settings than on highways or in the countryside. But as we've discussed on the show before, that system largely relies on the majority, if not all of the traffic, being similarly automated. Otherwise, Mm. all those unpredictable humans are going to mess up all the finely crafted machine calculations by zipping in between lanes and jumping traffic lights and doing all of the things that we're great at. So that complexity increases exponentially when we're talking about autonomous aircraft, especially when we're talking about doing short hops in urban settings because you're flying above buildings and houses. So even if you have replaced the, you know, the explosive potential of the aviation fuel with lithium cells, there's still potential for a lot of collisions and a lot of damage from something falling from above. So I'd imagine then that there's also a lot of licensing hurdles to overcome. Yeah, a lot of the US startups seem to be basing their future profitability on the idea of being able to operate by 2024. Now, that may be a large hill for them to climb, especially if we're talking about autonomous vehicles. As I said, you know, cities are only slowly coming around to the idea of self-driving cars. Their presence is limited on our streets at the moment. So as far as I know, there are no similar licenses for unmanned aircraft to fly over US towns and cities. So there's a huge amount of work to be done to get that licensing in place before they can even start to test that business model. And the likelihood is that in many countries, the craft is still going to need a pilot, even if most of the flight is automated. And I think that's going to continue for quite a few years to come. Now, obviously, one issue with these things being 
electric is is range. Do they have the range? Well, some of the Scandinavian countries have announced that they want to concentrate on electric-powered aircraft for regional flights as part of their efforts to cut carbon emissions. And that's partly why I mentioned uh, Boeing and Airbus being part of this sector as well. So existing battery technologies do represent a bit of a dilemma. There's only so much efficiency that's left to squeeze out of lithium-ion batteries, and those packs are very, very heavy. So with aircraft, it's not the same argument as with uh, a car or a lorry. With those, you add more packs, you add a little bit more weight, but the trade-off is that you get more range. With a plane, the more weight you add, the more power you need to keep it in the air. Uh, and so you're going to have to compromise by reducing load, whether that be in terms of passengers or in terms of freight. And there's a similar range trade-off with flying cars. Well, for now, yes. The the, the range is mostly fine uh, when we're talking about these kind of air taxis because we're looking at short urban hops. Right. Ra- rapid charging technology can see them powered back up in you know two to three hours, potentially even less. But in order for them to be really useful in that go anywhere taxi sense they're going to have to be quite small and if you have to have a pilot for those regulatory reasons that's going to be a half to a quarter of your passenger payload gone just with the person piloting and that's going to put the price of the service up and as well it's going to limit its functionality and that's before we even get to that infrastructural component like uh you know important things like places to land Well, yeah, you know, it's all very well for this type of craft to take off and land on tall buildings with flat roofs. But as you venture out into suburbia, the buildings get lower and the closer you get to the ground, the more hazards you encounter like power cables. And that's without mentioning the little thing of the noise. Mm. So, yes, flying cars will be less noisy than helicopters, but that's a bit like saying a hurricane is quieter than a tropical storm. (laughs) So, you know, at a previous apartment I lived in, one of uh, our neighbors regularly commuted by helicopter. And that was really, really exciting at first, um, but was mostly just deafening (laughs) thereafter. Uh, You know, we also experienced a, a massive landslide at that same apartment. And I've got to say the landslide was a lot quieter than the helicopter was. So anyone who has been near one of those uh, camera or leisure drones knows that they are incredibly loud. So a roofing company uh, came and used one to inspect my roof recently. So technology-wise, fantastic, but my neighbours weren't particularly impressed by the noise. So in a sense, it's an issue of swapping uh, carbon pollution for noise pollution. Well, increasingly, we're seeing local governments and city planners working to make cities more livable. So this is a a future development that is definitely not written in stone. So yes, they are reducing carbon, but they're not necessarily willing to swap that for noise pollution, especially when we have a ready supply of ground-based alternatives. You know, electric cars are pretty much silent. And electric bicycles and scooters are becoming a lot more commonplace on our city streets. So there's going to be that, that issue of whether or not we actually need these air taxis. Still, um, is this the closest we've uh, come to bringing the world of the Jetsons to life? You know, my feeling is that, you know, despite the the money that's being poured in, this kind of transport is not going to become ubiquitous 
ubiquitous uh, in the same way that e-hailing has. I think it'll be more common than helicopter taxis, but still in that bucket of being quite exclusive. I don't think regulators are ready for autonomous taxis just yet. So I imagine it's going to take a few brave cities to volunteer and provide the case studies. So I imagine that these things are going to remain piloted and not pilotless for the foreseeable future. But where I think there is more potential is in larger bus-sized machines, which could form part of public transport grids. Uh, these could help to speed up commuting, as well as the idea of prizing us out of individual vehicles, which is, you know, really part of the problem. Uh, whether it's in the skies or on the ground, what we really want are fewer vehicles serving more people rather than the other way around. But, you know, I'll leave it for today by saying I'm happy that after only a hundred years of work, the age of the flying car is finally upon us. Maybe I'll put that on a T-shirt. Thanks for that, Matt. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to Matt Splain, of course, and if you've missed any part of this show, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally get it from. Uh, I recommend the uh, BFM app. It's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. Also, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CultureBop and its consulting services. I'm Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.